Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. I am your co-host, Carlos Carvalho, with my colleague, Mario Villarreal. Our guest today is Ovik Roy. Ovik is a scientist, investment analyst, journalist, and policy advisor. He co-founded the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, a nonpartisan think tank focusing on expanding economic opportunities for those who least have. Ovik has been policy advisor to three Republican Party presidential candidates and is also the policy editor for Forbes magazine. Ovik, welcome to Policy McCombs. Hey, it's great to be here. I think this is the first podcast I've ever recorded in the presence of a Steinway piano. Oh, <laughs> yes, we are in a very fancy studio here at, at UT. Um, so let's start by uh, telling us, tell us a little bit about FreeOp, the, the, the foundation you started. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. It's good to be with you. Uh, so FreeOp, or the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, is a new think tank. We founded it in 2016. It's about two and a half years old. And we founded it because we came away from the 2016 election and a lot of things that had been building up in our politics leading up to 2016, concluding that our politics were broken. And I don't just mean that in the way that a lot of us mean it. You know, there's a lot of yelling on cable news. We have the sense that that we're hopelessly divided in America. And if you watch TV a lot, you you will be con- you will, you could conclude fairly that we're hopelessly divided. But the, but the thing is, I think what a lot of people out there in the country and in places like Austin realize is that we're not actually hopelessly divided. That if you look at public opinion surveys, if you look at political science, if you talk to people your neighbors, your family, your friends, your community, you realize that we're actually almost entirely united on what America ought to stand for. And that is to say about 80% of Americans, if you look at polls, agree with the principle that America should be a place where there's equal opportunity. Not necessarily equal outcomes. You can't guarantee equal outcomes. But we should be a country in which every American, regardless of where, whether you came, where you came from, where your parents came from, uh, what side of the tracks you grew up on, how much money your parents make, uh, that you should have a fair shot at success in America, that those things should not be a barrier to you achieving your aspirations and your dreams. And that 80% may have different views as to exactly how you define equal opportunity or what policies you might need to implement in order to achieve equal opportunity. But if we're starting from the same principle, that's 80% of the battle, I think. You know, again, those the, the conventional wisdom that we're hopelessly divided is that we can't agree on the basic principles and therefore we'll never agree on policies and we won't agree on reforms. But if 80% of Americans agree on the principle of equal opportunity, then what we're really debating is evidence. We're debating the evidence as to whether certain policies work better than others. And that is the perfect place uh, for a think tank to set itself up, to set up shop, to say, you know what? We don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. If you believe that every American ought to have a fair shot at success, we're going to try to do research on developing a set of policies that that both Republicans and, and Democrats can rally around because they both believe in equal opportunity. And, and that's why we focus on, in particular, the way in which free enterprise and technological innovation and individual, individual initiative lead to equal opportunity, because that, to us, 
is the true bipartisan consensus. The, 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 you get the Republicans on free enterprise and the Democrats on social mobility, and that's how you get 60 votes in the Senate. So many of us know that promising reforms go to die in the Senate because you don't get 60 votes for them. And a lot of think tanks, they're, while they are technically uh, 501c3 organizations that are nonpartisan, de facto they end up being partisan and they rely on and wait for either the Democrats or the Republicans to have complete control of the government before they can actually hope that any of their ideas make it into legislation. Our approach is the opposite. We're actually trying to set up ideas and reforms and policies that can work and be enacted in any government, whether it's Democrat or Republican, or where it's split like it is today. So that's been one of the exciting things about working at Free Others. When we started it, this was a theory. We had this theory that there was this massive gap, we could call it in the middle, but we're talking about 80% between the 10-yard between the lines uh, on the football field, that uh, others weren't as, as, uh, as, as uh, occupying with as much alacrity. And... Um, Two and a half years. Two and a half years later, all I can say is that we're uh, we're busier than ever. That 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 everything we we thought and hoped for about our politics has has been reflected in how busy we are and how much traction our ideas are getting. And, to, and today you join us to talk about, um, I guess, an example of, of this this being in in the, in the eight yards, eighty yards between the the, the, the middle of the field. Uh, you're joining us to talk about the conservative case for universal health insurance. So, so two sides of uh, uh, of the discussion in, in healthcare. So, so make that case. Yeah, in fact, uh, it, it's uh, apropos of what we were just talking about. In that, it was my experience writing about and studying healthcare policy that led me to have this broader view of American politics. That is to say, our healthcare system is so messed up that conservatives and progressives can win at the same time. With the right reforms, you can have a healthcare system in America in which everyone has health insurance, something that progressives traditionally care about a lot, but also a system that's more fiscally sustainable, that has more choice and less heavy-handed intrusion in order to guarantee that basic financial security for every American. So there are things that we can do to make the healthcare system more conservative in ways that also achieve outcomes that progressives care about. And as I mentioned, that's that's... That's not just true in healthcare. That's true in housing policy. That's true in education. That's true when it comes to the cost of living. That is true when it comes to economic growth. There are lots of areas where both progressives and and conservatives can win. But in healthcare specifically, uh, it's especially true. If you look around the world, I think it's something we actually don't do enough in our healthcare debates. You know, you hear people say, "Well, the one thing you hear people say is, well, we spend more than every other country.'" And we, our health outcomes are no different than any other country. That that you hear, but but if you just if you go beyond that superficial description and really dig into how it is that other countries have achieved universal coverage and how it is they've uh, achieved better outcomes than the United States, there's actually a really broad diversity of ways in which other countries have achieved that. It's not just single payer. Uh, so there's there's a, actually this kind of stereotype on both the right and the left that the only way to achieve universal coverage is through single-payer healthcare, in which the government is the only insurance company. But that's not actually true. There are countries like Switzerland uh, that have universal private health insurance systems, which, where, in fact, there is no public option or any government-run uh, health insurer. Then there are a lot of countries, for example, like Germany, which are a hybrid, where there are public insurers and there are private insurers that, that work in concert and compete against each other in the open market. So there are a lot of different ways to achieve universal coverage, 
And and a part of what what we've been doing at FreeUp is to dr- try to bring some of those more market-based models uh, into focus in the United States policy discussion. Let's try to clarify the role of markets. Where where would the market forces be playing a role in in the case um, that you're putting forward here? Well, let's let's step back a little bit again philosophically. So the there are I'd say there are two coherent economically coherent ways to run a healthcare system. One is to have a single payer system in which the government is subsidizing health insurance for everyone, and in order to control the cost, if you make something free. And, uh, and you don't have cost controls, then it'll be like me at an open bar. People will consume the most expensive care at, at, at wasteful uh, uh, rates, and, and that will lead to a lot of overspending. So single-payer countries deal with this by regulating access to costly services and regulating the price of healthcare services. So price controls, rationing are really essential features of a true single-payer system because that's how you keep the cost down. And that works. So contrary to what a lot of conservatives believe, uh, single-payer systems like Canada, for example, or the UK, do actually spend a lot less than the US and have universal health insurance. There are a lot of drawbacks to those kinds of systems, but they do they are more fiscally rational than the US, where we actually subsidize health insurance for almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody. Let's say 90% of the country has subsidized health insurance in one form or another, but we have no cost controls. And uh, not only no cost controls, we actually reward the suppliers of healthcare services and products, if they charge higher prices, uh, we don't reward them for competing and charging lower prices. So we have an incredibly perverted system in the U.S. The single payer system can work. Now that the other fl- the flip side of that is, if you had a true market system, what would that look like? In a true market system, it would look more like the countries like Switzerland and Singapore, where. Uh, Every individual, in the case of Switzerland in particular, chooses their own insurance plan. So in America, uh, most of us, half of us, uh, more than half of Americans, get their insurance through their employer. And in that context, you're not choosing your plan. It's chosen for you by some bureaucrat at the company you work for. And uh, it's taken out of the premiums are taken out of your paycheck pre-tax, so you never actually see how much is being taken out of your paycheck to spend it. That's not a market-based system. Uh, again, it's like me at the open bar where I don't know what, especially if it's at an in-law's wedding, I'm going over there and I'm getting the fanciest bourbon I can find. And I don't care what it costs because they could charge 200 bucks for the bourbon is all I care because because uh, I'm not paying for it, right? And our healthcare system is basically a $3 trillion open bar. So in a true market, what we would do is we would say to people, buy your own insurance, and we'll have a safety net in which if you're really poor or really sick or really vulnerable, we'll subsidize the cost of your insurance up to a point. But we'll also reward you if you shop intelligently and find a plan uh, that is doing the best job of providing that range of services at the lowest possible price. And if you do that, uh, then you can keep those savings yourself, save them for, in a health savings account or, or use them for other non-healthcare spending. So if you do that, Broadly speaking, the way to think about it is to move our system to a more market-based system, because our system is not a market-based system, you have to do two things. One, more people have to buy their own insurance, because today, of the 90% of Americans who have health insurance, about 90% of those don't shop for their own insurance. They get it handed to them either by their employer or the government. So the more you move to a system in which people are shopping for their own insurance, the more you have a market. That's piece number one. And piece number two, which flows directly from that, is if people are shopping for their own insurance, you're you're going to organically move more to a system in which only the costliest things are insured. 
So if you think about insurance today, compare health insurance to auto insurance, right? When we buy car insurance, the car insurance doesn't pay for our gasoline at the Exxon station. Or oil change. <laughs> or oil change, right? The, 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 the insurance pays for it. Your car gets totaled or your car gets stolen. So that 30000 bucks you'd have to spend replacing your car, that's covered by insurance. That's how health insurance should work too and did work until we started subsidizing it in all the non-transparent ways we do. And if you had more of a market-based system in which you as the patient control the dollars that were being spent on insurance on your behalf, if you're spending those yourself, you know what you're going to do? You're going to move, most people are going to move to a model that's more like car insurance, where, yes, I want to make sure if I'm 26 years old or 35 years old, I'm five, particularly if I'm in good health, that I'm protected if I get hit by a bus or I have a stroke or I get cancer. But for my everyday expenses, all that money I'm not giving to the insurance company, I can save and then spend on other things. Um, and so naturally, if people are shopping for their own insurance in a market, in an individual market, not an employer-based system or a government-based system, then people will naturally say, you know what, the things I really want to be protected against are these high costs, but for everyday routine costs, I'm more comfortable uh, paying for that directly. And so, so that, that, that's the second step. So the first step is buy insurance yourself because then you get the savings if, you, if insur insurers are competing on cost. And then the second bit of it is the more you're buying insurance on your own, the more likely you're incentivized to insure fewer things. And therefore, more things are then paid for directly by you rather than by a third party. And that's once you get to that point, then healthcare really looks like a true market. Think about it, a, a great example. So you hear people say, well, if we want to have a market in health insurance or healthcare, we got to have price transparency. We got to require that hospitals and doctors post the prices of all their services. Well, you know what's funny? Very few people stop to ask, why is it that we don't have to have a law forcing Best Buy to post their prices when you go to shop for a TV at Best Buy? No, there's no law needed because Best Buy knows that if you want to buy a TV, you're not going to buy the TV if you don't know how much it costs, right? Uh, so why does that system work? Because you, the consumer, are controlling the dollars. And in healthcare, if the consumer is controlling the dollars, price transparency will naturally flow from that because the doctors are not going to get your business unless you know ahead of time how much is coming out of your pocket to pay for that service. Now, again, there's some subtleties and some asterisks that if you want to, we can get into with all this because healthcare has some quirks. But that's the general principle. More people, if not everyone, shopping for their own health insurance, and then more and more things more and more ways because of that, we move to a, a, a rational insurance model where health insurance looks more like car insurance. Yeah, that, that sounds great, but I, I think the, the piece that's missing still in my, in my understanding is like, how do we make it universal? What is the, so that's the, where the role of the government to come in and subsidize the purchase. Is that, is that a correct assumption? Yeah, so one of the things uh, that's really amazing about American healthcare, and this is one of the key slides that I'll present in the talk that, uh, that is accompanying this podcast at the University of Texas. Which, which everyone can watch it later on in our website. Uh, is that the, the per capita public spend on healthcare in America is higher than almost every other country in the world, despite the fact that we have 25, 30 million people uninsured. Our healthcare system is so inefficient 
that we spend more on government spending than almost every other country in the world, and we still have so many uninsured people. Why is that? There are two key reasons why we spend all this money, and yet we still have a problem with people struggling to afford health insurance. The first is what we've talked about already to a degree, which is that healthcare is so expensive in America. The unit price of a day in the hospital or a prescription drug or a lab test is two to three to five to 10x higher in the U.S. and in other countries. So we have to spend more subsidizing health insurance and health care because the unit prices of everything are so much higher. That's problem number one. But problem number two, which is uh, just as significant, if not more so, is that we subsidize almost everybody's health insurance. So wealthy people get a massive subsidy to buy uh, uh, healthy, uh, generous health insurance benefits in the U.S. The upper middle class, people making two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year, get generous subsidies in the employer-based system, tax breaks to buy health insurance. So, what's the biggest difference between a country like Switzerland, say, which has a universal market-based system, and America? The biggest difference is that in Switzerland, the government is only subsidizing the cost of health insurance for the bottom thirty percent of the population in wealth or health status. Whereas in America, again, we're, we're actually we're subsidizing coverage generously for very, very poor people, for the upper middle class and above, and it's sort of the middle class and the lower middle class, or people in that range of incomes, who are the most, uh, the least subsidized relative to their costs and income and health status in America. So we have this upside-down system where we over-subsidize coverage for the wealthy and under-subsidize it for the working poor and the lower middle class. So. All you have to do, if I can put it very simplistically, is to actually end and curtail subsidies for the wealthy and rectify some of the inequities in how we subsidize coverage for the working poor. And you can spend a lot less money than we spend now and cover everybody. So you can have far less spending uh, and universal coverage if you if you move this if you rationalize the way we subsidize coverage. And then if you tackle the high cost of care, with things we can we can talk about for ages, uh, for hours, you can actually make the the cost of health insurance overall less expensive, which also reduces the amount of spending uh, that to covering the uninsured takes. Obig, you you discuss some of the drawbacks of the single payer system, and you just elaborate a little bit on those. Now, how about your proposal? Like uh, some argue that a consumer-driven healthcare system. Uh, may be problematic because, after all, consumers do not have all the necessary information to make educated choices about things related to healthcare, medicine. How would you respond to that criticism, or do you see any other drawbacks on your proposal? Do you know what LTE stands for? No, but I will guess that you are going to tell me. Uh, no, I'm not going to tell. I'm going to leave it a secret for for you and our audience to, <laughs> right. to look up. But. All right. But LTE is the protocol in which most cell phones in the United States uh, run under. Oh, yeah. Right? Now, you didn't know what LTE stands for. And again, we're going to keep it a secret so people can look it up later. But you have a cell phone that uses LTE. Yeah, I'm just looking at it that right now. And you're, you're right. It says LTE. Right. So, you know, isn't it amazing that you're able to buy a cell phone and use it every day and check your email on it and not actually know how data is transmitted over the network and gets to Carlos over here so you can tell him uh, where to have dinner tonight? It's amazing, right? There are a lot of things about our world uh, that we don't understand how they work, but we use them every day. Uh, so... It's not actually necessary to know the intricacies of how pr the, med the practice of medicine happens or, or the latest in medical science or the, the, the details, the intricacies of how health economics works to have, 
to have a user-friendly system in which health insurance and the basic utility of health insurance and healthcare is usable for you. So, so that's one that's one element of this whole thing about you know people will say, well, you know, if consumers don't really understand uh, healthcare, therefore there's this asymmetry of information, and therefore uh, they should never be allowed to actually have any choices. Well. This is true of airlines, right? Like, I don't know how to fly a plane. I'm trusting that the, you know, the mechanics fix that plane and that it works and that the pilot knows how to fly it. And yes, there are regulations that help govern that. But I still have an option to fly on American Airlines or United Airlines or Delta or Allegiant or Southwest or whatever I want to do, right? So uh, similarly in healthcare... The, the, the asymmetry of information is not unique to healthcare. So the, uh, as you know and you're alluding to, there was a Stanford economist or is a Stanford economist named Canaro, Canaro who uh, a little over 50 years ago made this argument that, well, there's this asymmetry of information in healthcare and therefore uh, we should remove people even more from the choices uh, that they're making. Uh, and, and that makes absolutely no sense because actually everything that we do, every choice we make every day, every product or service that we consume contains some asymmetry of information. In fact, the original uh, legal structure of asymmetry information or d- description of it was in uh, real estate. The, the, the ancient Latin phrase caveat emptor comes from the idea that w- if I sell you a house, I know a lot more about whether that house is in good repair than you do. And yes, we try to address that through having an inspection and this and that, but there still may be something about that house that I've hidden from you that, you know, uh, you're not going to know about. And that's why that we say, let the buyer beware, right? It's a buyer's responsibility. No, there's an asymmetry of information there. There's an asymmetry of information with a car mechanic. You take your car to the mechanic and, you know, you're trusting that he's telling you what's actually wrong with your car instead of selling you an extra set of services you don't really need. So, uh, we, but we don't yet have a single-payer system for car mechanics. Maybe we ought to. Uh, you know, where we really should have a single-payer <laughs> system is for le- for lawyers, because if there's anything I don't understand, it's the law. And so I really don't understand, given the asymmetry of information with lawyers, that we don't have a single-payer system for law. But but I, won't, I don't want to get too far afield here. So, so... So what is it? But this is but this is an important part of the debate, right? So the, the people who are more market oriented philosophically when it comes to healthcare, the market based advocates like myself, have much more confidence in the consumer to make choices that maybe people on the other side of this debate don't. Uh, but that isn't to say that we shouldn't be mindful of asymmetry of information. We should do what we can to to solve it. Technology allows us to do that more and more every day, right? So think about the fact that you know until. About 15 years ago, you couldn't go online and look up uh, diseases, right? The way you can now with WebMD or an infinite number of websites where, okay, I've got this weird kind of red scratchy thing on my tummy and I don't know what it is. And do I have eczema or not? I don't know. I'm going to look it up and see and see what, what I should do about it. It's like an instant second opinion to any physician who you talk to. If you really want to, you can, of course, delve, delve into the medical literature and find out what the, the latest treatments are. Um so all these opportunities are available and more available every day, particularly as artificial intelligence and machine learning allow uh, those kinds of technologies to be more accessible to the everyday person. Think about this. Uh, there are apps. They're not legal in the U.S. because of our wonderful regulatory system. But in other countries, there are, there are smartphone apps that allow you to take a photograph on your iPhone camera, your smartphone camera, of a little splotch you have on your skin and the the camera sends the the image to a uh, to a cloud-based artificial intelligence uh, uh, program that analyzes whether that lesion could be melanoma or whether it's harmless. And statistically speaking, that system is more accurate 
than your local dermatologist. Now, why don't we have that system in the U.S.? Again, it's because uh, the FDA has been very cautious in, in trusting uh, patients with their smartphones to make these kinds of diagnoses themselves. But more and more, the asymmetry of information is going to go in the other direction, where the patient actually has more accurate knowledge of his own medical condition than does his primary care physician, because they, particularly for rarer diseases, right? Because if, if you've got a rare disease that your primary care physician doesn't see that often or ever, you're going to be the one who's done all the research on that disease. The doctor's not going to have done it, right? So you're going to be able to go to that doctor and say, hey, I saw that there's this new drug that just came out or there's this drug in phase three clinical trials. What do you think about it? And the doctor's not going to know. He's going to have to kind of give you some, you know, uh, kind of superficial answer while he goes back to his computer and looks it up. So all this to say that asymmetry of information is it goes in two directions in healthcare, and we need to create more space for uh, for patients and entrepreneurs to find those opportunities where the patient actually has more useful information uh, than the physician does. We shouldn't assume that the physician has this encyclopedia in his head with every piece of medical information in it. Uh, and so, if anything, technology is going to move us more in that direction, and we ought to allow that to happen. That's a key part of where market-based healthcare can be better than single-payer single healthcare because it creates more opportunities for consumers and entrepreneurs and patients to think up ways to solve problems, like the smartphone thing I was mentioning with the melanomas, that a single-payer system would never consider or invent. So let me, let me turn to, to winners and losers here, right? If you're able to get a proposal, all your ideas through and you know, into law, um, it sounds to me that at least in one component, when you mentioned that currently we have a system that for a lot of services, we're two times, three times, up to 10 times more expensive than, than other rich countries in the world will pay for, 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 for um, the same service, somebody's going to lose if all of a sudden there's a more competitive market that will bring those margins down, right? So who, who are the primary losers and winners uh, uh, of, of, of basically what are the trade-offs that we're facing here and who are the people that might resist this? Well, there's basically two, if you've really had a market-based system in which there was real competition for healthcare services and fewer opportunities for monopolies and rent-seeking, who would, let's talk about who would win first. The people who would win number, uh, above all else would be the patient. Right? The patient would have more choices. The patient would be spending less of his or her income on health care and less of his, his or her income on health insurance. So the patient would have a much greater amount of disposable income, which not only benefits that patient in terms of having money to spend or save on other things, but if you think about it as a Keynesian stimulus, right, like think of all the extra money that would flow to the rest of the economy, because instead of diverting all your money to health insurance and health care, you're spending that on a vacation, or a new car, or a new TV, or maybe you're getting a bigger apartment, or you're getting a new stove, or you're just uh, able to afford the, the everyday cost of living if you're getting just to getting by now. So there's an enormous economic downstream stimulus that would lead to a lot of job growth and a lot of economic growth, not merely the fact that uh, that you would have this uh, this uh, this increased disposable income at the patient or household level. So that but those but that's like big winner number one. Big winner number two is the taxpayer, because uh, the taxpayer would have less pressure in terms of higher and higher tax bills if we're spending less as a government or at a federal, state, and local level, governments, plural, on health care. So that not only means uh, less of your tax dollars going to the government because uh, we're spending less money in health care, which is the biggest driver of our deficits uh, and debt, but think about all the other 
public needs, where they're where where uh, we're starving the government of the resources it needs to to deal with other public challenges, whether it's highways or schools or firemen or anything else that you think is a is an important public priority that we're where we're not spending money because the healthcare system is squeezing all that out. So the so the so there's not only on the taxpayer side, but also for other government priorities. The military is another great example. This where the military budget is getting squeezed uh, as a result of healthcare spending. There, what whatever element of government spending you care about is going to be better off in a system in which we're spending less on healthcare than we do today. So that that's kind of category number two of winners. Uh, category number three of winners is people who are savers, people who've put away a little bit of money uh, every year, every month, every paycheck throughout their lives and want that money to go farther in life because the bigger our debts and deficits get, what that does is that decreases the value of the U.S. dollar. Uh, and as the U.S. dollar declines relative to the value of other currencies out there, then all that money that you saved uh, also decreases in value in terms of its purchasing power, particularly of goods that are manufactured elsewhere around the world. As, and as we know, a lot of what we buy is 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 made around the world. So, so those are the, th- the three categories of big winners. I'd say actually, there's a fourth category, which are entrepreneurs, the people who, uh, the innovators who will be unleashing a system where they have an incentive to to provide healthcare services that consumers actually want, and drive. Uh, higher quality and lower cost for the consumer using technology, the people who are able to do that, they're going to be billionaires because they're going to find ways to save everyday consumers and patients money in ways that enrich consumers and enrich them too, which is how capitalism is supposed to work. So those are the four categories of winners. And, and so, let's not forget the uninsu- currently uninsured. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I count them in the patient model, right? The people who are going to have lower healthcare expenditures and therefore have more, you know, are going to be able to afford their healthcare services. It's not, the uninsured is a big part of the problem, but we should not forget the people who are just above being uninsured, right? The people who are just getting by, who are, who could be uninsured tomorrow if healthcare costs keep going up and up and up and will be, in fact. So it's not just the 25 million who are uninsured. It's, I think, the the next 50 million or so of Americans, if not 100 million or so of Americans for whom uh, healthcare costs are are putting a lot of pressure on their disposable income. So those are four categories of winners. And then, and who are the losers? The losers are in part um, very uh, the top seven executives at your at every hospital system in the country because right now those people are making enormous amounts of money mainly because they're monopoly powers that can that that can overcharge patients and that money flows somewhere particularly in nonprofit hospitals three quarters of American hospitals are nonprofits they don't they don't give that that money to shareholders uh, they give that money to themselves. And so senior management at hospitals, that would be one uh, area of big losers. Senior management at incumbent pharmaceutical and biotech companies, similarly, won't be as as wealthy as they are today. Um, And there are a lot of middlemen who benefit from the system as it is where there are people who you don't see, you know, know, they aren't aren't the public face of the system, but make a lot of money because there's so much money sloshing around in the healthcare system and so much regulation that the people who are administering the interstices of that system uh, collect a lot of dough. So there, there will be, there will certainly be compression in uh, in what we might call the income inequality of the healthcare system or the wealth inequality of the healthcare system, where if you're at the very top of an established player in the healthcare system, particularly hospitals and drug companies, you're making enormous amounts of money now uh, because uh, because of the prices you can charge. And as prices go down, those individuals may make less, uh, but every other American will make more. 
Now, this is just a very interesting political economy issue, which is the winners you described tend for most part being not that well organized, dispersed, um, their abilities to actually make a compelling case collectively are not the same that these big potential losers, right? That they are lobbying for keeping the system as it is, that they have many resources, they have a lot of stake. So how do you see this unfolding? How do you see the political economy, the political process of the healthcare reform unfolding or not in the near future, given this potential tension? And, and let me uh, add to that. Uh, you have, you know, working a couple of bills, right? There are uh, uh, in Congress right now. So tell us a little bit about that as well in the same context. Yeah, uh, those are definitely related questions. So uh, it's it's a general problem of political economy that policies in which the losers are concentrated and the winners are diffuse are very difficult to enact. Um, uh, a classic example of this is loopholes in the tax code, right? Where we want to clean out the tax code, make it more fair, but the people who benefit from this particular obscure loophole fight like hell to keep it in there, and they often, more often than not, win. And our healthcare system is certainly a reflection of similar principles in that the beneficiaries of the high unit prices in our healthcare system organize to defend. Uh, that uh, that entrenched system, the incumbents, rather than uh, uh, to protect the consumer. The the difference in healthcare is that uh, healthcare spending and the cost of healthcare is such a large percentage of not only our economy but of the average American's income that the the uh, the losers are not while they are diffuse in the sense that there are more of them for each individual American. The cost of healthcare is a deeply personal and stressful issue. Uh, the, the, the risk of losing one's health insurance in particular, and therefore the fear of going bankrupt due to medical bills, is pervasive. And even for those who have insurance, you know, who let's say you're making thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, and you have a six thousand dollar deductible, and you use it because you, you you tweaked your knee or something, you know, that's a big chunk of your income that's just gone. Even though you theoretically have insurance, you're like, why is it, what do I have insurance for if my deductible is $6,000? So, and because it's not like the insurance is cheap. I mean, if the insurance was actually cheap, if the insurance was costing you 10 bucks a month or something like that, or 20 bucks a month, okay, fine. But if the insurance is costing you a thousand bucks a month and you have a six thousand dollar deductible that's what people just uh just are are, are exasperated by I, I'm, another one of the charts that i'll i'll present at this talk i'm giving today at the university of texas is something that i actually had to recheck three times that if you actually look at the average average american household's tax rate now that the after this most recent tips around a tax reform in late 2017 the average household in America has an effective tax rate of about 13.5%. I mean, in other words, 13.5% of their income is going to the, the IRS, the federal government. The average household's share of national hospital spending is 14.8%. I'm not talking about healthcare overall. I'm just talking hospitals. So if you add up what the average American household pays for health insurance, what they pay in out-of-pocket costs, and what they pay in taxes for other people's hospital costs, it's actually more as a share of their income than what they are spending, what they're directly sending to the IRS, which is astounding, 
right? If you think about it, like the so so for the typical Republican who you know say just to pick on Republicans for a second, the typical Republican who might say, well, you know, I'm not so fa- I'm not a fan of Bernie's system. I don't like price control, so I'm gonna I'm gonna trust the status quo. I think that's a free market, and I'm gonna listen to the hospital lobbyist who says don't don't really mess with our income stream. It's a market based system. You're having your voters tell you every day that actually. You know, I don't care about tax cuts anymore. You've cut my taxes. Thank you very much. But, you know, what what's really affecting me and what's going to make my life meaningfully worse in the future is not my tax rate. It's the amount of money that hospitals are taking out of my paycheck. The hospitals are more pernicious. For the average American family, hospitals are more dangerous economically than the IRS, <laughs> which is, an, again, it's an incredible fact, statistical fact, but it is. And this gets to the point, Carlos, that you were mentioning, which is that there are now a number of bills that have been uh, introduced into Congress based on our work. Uh, uh, one of them is a, a, a really ambitious, wide-ranging bill that tries to tackle a broad range of, uh, of these issues. It's called the Fair Care Act by a congressman named Bruce Westerman. It tries to tackle the high cost of hospital care, the high cost of drugs, uh, the, the, the problems around the regula- re- regulations around digital health uh, that stymie entrepreneurs in the digital health space. It tries to tackle the regulatory problems in Obamacare and the employer-based market, reforms, entitlements. So it's doing a lot of different things to try to, because it's a big problem, you have to attack it a number of different ways. Bruce Westerman's bill, the Fair Care Act, is, is, is uh, I have to give all the credit to him to, for willing to take on uh, these big challenges. And you can look up his bill online, uh, which is the most the bill that most broadly reflects the broad range of principles that we've been developing at FreeOp. But let me leave his bill aside for a second and talk about uh, another congressman named Jim Banks from Indiana, who's put out a bill called the Hospital Competition Act of 2019. In fact, the Hospital Competition Act of 2019 uh, is largely incorporated into Bruce Westerman's bill. It's actually Title IV of Westerman's bill. But let's just take the hospital piece specifically. So kind of like what we were talking about before, uh, the hospital lobby is very powerful in every congressional district in America. The hospital sector is the second largest employer just behind the public schools. And they say that if you if you uh, uh, ask us to, if you spend less money on us, then we're going to close and then you're not going to have a hospital in your district. And every congressman shakes with fear that this could happen to them. And they get blamed for it. Uh, so, so the hospital lobby is very powerful. Uh, so I, I, you know, when this congressman told me, Jim Banks, he's like, I want to work on a hospital bill with you. Let's let's do this together because you've got some ideas I like in there. Uh, and I said, well, you know, congressman, just so you know, <laughs> this is going to be the, the hospital lobby is going to fight you hard on this. And here are all the things they're going to argue and they're going to assert and they're going to claim and they're going to say that you're a really terrible guy. And he said, look, uh, you know, uh, there are more constituents in my district than there are hospital executives. And uh, I'm, I'm here to serve them. And I think you're seeing more and more of that attitude that for the average congressman, they're hearing so many stories from their constituents, from their voters, about how people are struggling to afford their health care bills, how they've been laid low, how their their entire economic future is being curtailed by the high cost of health care, that these handful of campaign contributions or lobbyists or whatever it is from the industry are just not enough to outweigh that overwhelming need to serve your constituents and solve this problem. And so I, I think we're close to a tipping point in that regard, if we aren't already over it, which is to say that 
It used to be that only people on the left really cared about health care costs. People on the right would get defensive about it and say, no, everything's fine. We don't want price controls. We don't want a government-run system. And what we've tried to do at FreeUp is to say, no, actually, that's a false dichotomy. That there is not, you know, the, the only, it's not that the only two choices are not price controls, government-run, single-payer versus the status quo. There is a third option, which is actually a market-based system in which people actually control those health care dollars for themselves, where it's affordable for everybody, where people have the choice of multiple suppliers of any product or service, and where there's more personal a more personal touch and a more a more uh, service-oriented culture to our healthcare system instead of a bureaucratic-oriented culture. Well, Vic, thanks for your work and thanks for joining us at Policy at McCombs. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for all you do. Before we wrap up, you can get more information in our Medium page. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. See you next time. <laughs>